Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray, president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. And today I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Catherine Rowe, the 28th president of William & Mary. Ever since she arrived in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Dr. Rowe and her vision have been so well received by alumni, by state leaders, and by business leaders across the Commonwealth of Virginia. We are so pleased to have her join us today. I hope you don't mind if we start off with a question that I think gets at the heart of something that you're quite passionate about, and that is, why is a liberal arts education important for college students in the 21st century? And and on that note, what skills does a liberal arts instill that are relevant to today's businesses? First big picture answer is that a liberal arts and sciences degree is the best preparation for the 21st century for professional life, for citizenship in a world that's changing as rapidly as ours is. The distinguishing qualities of talent are going to be adaptability and range. And that's what a liberal arts and sciences education produces. I can drill down more if you're interested in hearing more, but that's the, that's the high level answer. No, that's wonderful. I'd I'd love for you to expand on that just a little bit, if you would. One of the premises of a liberal arts and sciences degree is that you are going to think about big problems that we're grappling with now, new problems, ones that haven't been addressed before. And you're going to do that from multiple angles with multiple kinds of expertise and methodologies to bear. David Epstein, in this wonderful book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph, in a specialized world that I recommend to all our listeners, makes the point that the world that we're in, modern work, modern citizenship, demands knowledge transfer, the ability to apply knowledge to new situations and different domains. He says, our most fundamental thought processes have changed to accommodate increasing complexity and the need to derive new patterns rather than rely only on familiar ones. And it's the conceptual classification schema across different ways of thinking, different modes of work, if you can move between those different schema, that's the scaffolding for connecting domains of knowledge and making them accessible and flexible. Think about the challenge we're facing right now under COVID of scaling up testing, which is one of the critical first steps in really combating the pandemic and returning to work and returning to life as we want to. We need the specialists very much to develop a science that's going to get us a robust array of tests, but we need the generalists because getting tests to human beings and analyzing who is most vulnerable, who needs them first, that's a massive logistics challenge, and that involves human questions, that involves economic questions, that involves demographic questions, geographic questions, how you move materials through space and bring humans together and get the results of your test and analyze them. So we're not going to be able to really, truly implement the kinds of control mechanisms that we need to in this pandemic without those generalists. That's wonderful. I always love hearing you talk about the liberal arts. It gets me excited. And you mentioned David <laughs> Epstein's book. I was thinking about you, actually, as I put that on my reading list a couple of days ago. So uh, oh, I'm looking forward, to, uh, looking forward to digging into it. Kind of expanding on that a little bit, one of the things that you've talked about that has really inspired me, and I should say not just talked about, but that you've really taken action on, has to do with this notion of kind of integrating digital literacy 
into a liberal arts education. It would be great if you could talk a little bit about how can a university best prepare students for the professional world through the combination of digital literacy and a classical liberal arts education, as well as maybe just chat a bit about some of the innovative pilot things that you guys have been doing at William & Mary in that regard. Terrific. Yeah. So, you know, I'm somebody who has been involved, engaged with digital technologies in the classroom and in scholarship for a really long time. I started my life as a Shakespeare scholar, very classically trained. I went back to graduate school as an adult, as a full professor, and retrained in media studies. And that accelerated my interest in how new tools digital tools included, can help us answer long-standing questions, can help us teach better, pursue new knowledge more effectively, communicate out what we're learning to each other more effectively. And that kicked off my life as an entrepreneur, developing with a partner and in partnership with the Folger Shakespeare Library, developing an app for learning complex knowledge like a Shakespeare play. The process of that entrepreneurial growth, it became really clear to me that hallmarks of professional life and citizenship now and for the century to come are going to be our ability to embrace changing technologies, understand what we gain and what we lose when we move across platforms, keep an eye on mission and core values of an organization, a business, a university, and express those as fully as possible in the new technology. One of the real strengths of a liberal arts and sciences degree that's infused with new technologies is that graduates are both tech savvy and they have the classic liberal arts skills, exceptional communication, the ability to think outside the box and look around the corner to bring and ethical questions and anticipate ethical challenges to new kinds of work and to be innovative. So examples of how that's happening at William & Mary, that's a really fun question for me. One example, we have partnered with company UiPath to put production-level software robots, bots, into the hands of our sophomores and invite them to use those bots in any aspect of their lives as citizens, as students, um, as learners. Um, some of them are working students, so as workers. So those students are going to be graduating into jobs where companies that are thinking about how do we use AI, how do we deploy software robots in our business, and they will already have been at the leading edge of thinking through that question as part of their four years at William Mary. Another example is we're thinking in new ways about the structure of the curriculum we are implementing this summer a standalone minor in data sciences so that in a single summer, you can go from zero to 60 in data sciences from never having taken a class in Python, never having really thought through data visualization, not having had a stats class, and be able at the end of the summer to have a complete minor. That's reorganizing our curriculum. Usually you stretch a minor over multiple years, and it's producing a, a much more intense experience. We had we started out with about 30 slots, and we had double the number of students interested in it. Once we've piloted that this summer, we will understand how we might scale it up and with other kinds of fields, how we might generate these standalone minors as, as a signature of our summer programming. That's wonderful. I, I just get excited every time I hear you talk about it. And I know your graduates already have really terrific employment outcomes, but I suspect they're going to be even better in the wake of those new initiatives. Just to add on, you mentioned the Strata Institute on the Future of Work, all the studies by McKinsey talk about those integrated skill sets. 
right, the, the range that we're discussing here, so tech-savvy plus. And the goal of this standalone minor is to take a student who might be an art history major or they could be a math major, they could be a sociology major, and to add on that sophistication in statistical analysis and in data analytics, data modeling, computational modeling, so that they can use the human questions that are coming from the other major, and they have the skill set of a data scientist to bring to bear on those questions. It's super exciting, and I think this is one of the places that Virginia is really going to be a leader. As you know, we're already one of the top producers of STEM grads in the country, one of the top producers of graduates in fields like computer science and software development, engineering, and so forth. But data science is just experiencing explosive growth, and explosive growth really across a wide range of industry sectors and, and domains. So what do you right. kind of see as, as really driving the increased importance of digital literacy? We could argue it was important maybe 10 or 20 years ago, but it seems to be even more important now. So let's talk a little bit about what digital literacy means to me, because many of our students are relatively fluent in new tools, social tools. They write, they think, they make videos, they communicate with each other, they socialize with each other on an array of digital platforms. But to me, the question is sophistication. So as those platforms change, are there questions about business mission that are raised? Are there questions about ethics that are raised? Are there questions about community values that are raised? That's what the breadth of preparation in a liberal arts and sciences degree gives you the ability to see change, to think through what could be the rebound effects, will there be backlash, where are the unexpected opportunities, how might we solve a problem we've not been able to solve before. So I think the pace of technology change is not going to slow. If anything, it will accelerate. And the consequences for democracy and the ways we communicate with each other, the ways we share knowledge the ways we present evidence and make arguments, those are only going to become more important. And as technology becomes more complex, it will be harder to understand how it works. Broadly speaking, what are the main qualities that college universities should instill in students and sort of cultivate into its graduates? Well, I described many of them already, right? So that blend of terrific ability to communicate and think and work collaboratively in communities of diverse expertise, diverse backgrounds, folks coming from different parts of the world, multiple modalities of knowledge, so quantitative thinking, qualitative thinking, the ability to navigate change in an adaptable way and embrace it and also guide it in a way that's aligned with the values of your community and your organization. Absolutely the ability to innovate. And so the disciplined entrepreneurial approach of testing things out, taking appropriate risks, listening to your constituencies or your clients or your customers to be able to refine the innovations that you are developing in process. So that entrepreneurial mindset above all, I think. And with that compassion an understanding of what it takes to build and sustain a community, because the world that we're in now, building community is really challenging. It's real work. And one of the things that's been so amazing to me about discovering William and Mary is how explicitly in front of mind for all our students and faculty and staff that task is of making community together. Thinking back to your inaugural address as William and Mary's president, you referenced the tension between sustain and advance tradition and innovation. What are the challenges in keeping one of the country's oldest universities moving forward? This is the best platform ever for moving forward because we have 327 years of innovation under our belts. 
two-thirds of our history, we were a private institution and we pivoted to become public, something I embraced with real delight. But people forget that. We changed in a moment of crisis fundamentally. And we've done that over and over again. And during COVID, it's been instructive to think about how this institution has persevered under extraordinary challenge, wars and prior epidemics, depression, and so many shocks. What we've got is a long history of innovation and resourceful and creative pivoting to new approaches. And, and that buoys us all. I think we claim it with a lot of pride. What do you see as William and Mary's role in economic development in Virginia? We are an essential part of the region's prosperity, as I view it. I, I see us as having a, a really important responsibility to collaborating with the business community and with the state government to think about how we can create competitive advantage for Virginia and for our citizens. I'm thrilled that we are part of the tech talent push. As I said earlier, I see our distinctive space in the world of STEM education as STEM plus. With a William & Mary graduate, you're going to get somebody who may be a data scientist, but they'll also be thinking about design, aesthetics, human experience, history. We've got real breadth and range in that human being as a colleague, as an employee, as a member of your community. As we think about the challenges of COVID, the commitment to returning our economy to prosperity is one that I know all of Virginia higher ed is deeply, deeply, compellingly drawn to. And as we've worked with the governor and his team, we've been thinking really hard about how can we adapt so that we are helping to speed our recovery economically. Well, it's definitely been a tremendous impact that William & Mary's had. And of course, as you know, we're very excited that William & Mary is a big part of Virginia's Tech Town Investment Program, where we're committing more than a billion dollars to roughly double the number of computer science grads each year at the bachelor's and master's level. And we're just thrilled right. for, for William & Mary to be a big part of that. We're already ahead of the targets this year, in our very first year out of the box on our computer science grads. I'll give you some stats from our entrepreneurship hub that I just got this morning looking at what happened this past year. You know, we moved our entrepreneurship hub to the center of campus. We had over 450 students, so we're nearing 10% of our students moving through the programming this year, 25 majors. 70% of those students were not business majors. That's an incredibly interesting statistic for a liberal arts and sciences university. Nearly half were women, nearly a third non-white. So think about the way that bucks the dominant trends in entrepreneurial thinking around the country. All of our class years are represented and 200 alumni were engaged in the programming. So that's just a quick snapshot of how swiftly William & Mary is engaging with that tech talent initiative. Yeah, we, we could not be more excited about it. And as you know, I'm very enthusiastic, really equally enthusiastic about the potential for data science to be a big driver as well. And we are hopeful that in the coming years, once we have a bit more of a fiscal recovery from the pandemic, that we can look at doing something in data science comparable to what we've done for computer science. You know, we've talked a little bit around the pandemic here, Dr. Rowe, what's the role of a university president getting institution through this kind of unprecedented situation? And what kind of guiding principles have you drawn from in terms of leading William and Mary through the pandemic era? Well, the great leader of American Express during 9-11, Ken Chenault, says it's the role of leadership in crisis to convey reality and instill hope. First principle is that you have to say what's true. You have to be truthful about the challenges you face 
how profound they are, or people won't trust you. We are facing existential challenges for higher ed around the country right now, and certainly in Virginia this coming year. You can talk about that in a way that's grounded and real and also chart a path to respond to those challenges. And there's so much that we are doing and can do to respond to those challenges. Those, I think, are the primary functions. And I hold that insight from Chenault in my mind every day. I think a couple of other principles that we've used create the space to respond to the human experience. So much feeling of loss and grief. So many of us know people who have passed or have friends who do. We know we have family who are on the front lines in healthcare who've been incredibly brave courageous this spring and protecting our communities. And we've been all in to support that in a way that's incredibly important, but taking the time to acknowledge what we've lost and how hard it's been and who's really leaned into that has been incredibly important. Two other things I think about a lot. One is the way this pandemic has highlighted the value of kinds of jobs, sectors of the economy, particularly the service economy that are usually invisible that we ignore. So cooks working in grocery stores and people driving trucks to be sure that there's food even in quarantine for our communities and so many more roles, the visibility of that labor and the importance of that labor, I think is one of the lasting changes that I hope we can hold on to. One of the principles for navigating the pandemic that we've used has been to make decisions in a phased way, think in a disciplined way for the short and medium term, and defer decision-making where we can so that we have the best information possible. Information is changing daily. The situation on the ground is changing daily still. And so for someone who likes to think big and in terms of long-term vision, strategic systems like me, that was a big shift to move towards short-term phase decision-making in a very disciplined way. But it has proven to be the right approach because it means that when we do make a decision, we're doing it with the most knowledge possible on making the best decision we can under the circumstances. So we're going to be using that same approach going forward. Well, I've been impressed what you all have done as well as higher ed in Virginia in general. I just feel like we've had great leadership. And I know it's a tough time for higher ed in Virginia and across the country, but I think we're going to come out stronger on the other end. Dr. Rowe, one of the things that's fascinated me about you at the beginning is your background in the sense that you certainly have all of the traditional markers of a you know, major university president, you know, PhD in English and American literature from Harvard. You've been a professor. You've published broadly. You've published at least three books that I'm aware of and so forth. And those things we might say are relatively common for university presidents, but there are two other really unique things from my perspective that, well, there are many things that set you apart, but two that really have stuck with me. One is that very few presidents, I think, have, have been entrepreneurs in their career, and you have mm. been. Likewise, uh, or in a different sort of unique feature, you've actually spent more than a decade coaching Ultimate Frisbee, and have actually led multiple teams yeah. to state championships in Pennsylvania. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you think those experiences, being an entrepreneur, being involved in Ultimate Frisbee, how, how they influenced your leadership style and your 
approach at William & Mary. Also curious about what you enjoy, have enjoyed the most about playing and coaching Ultimate Frisbee and, and whether you get to do it much uh, these days. Yeah, I don't, but let me tackle your first question about being an entrepreneur. So I am classically trained, as, as you say, as a scholar and teacher, and I'm a classroom teacher loved teaching with a passion my whole career. But I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So in some ways, the movement into entrepreneurship was sort of an arrival back at roots. I think above all, the importance of working in an iterative way, in a phased way, testing an idea, piloting, getting feedback, refining, and rolling those refinements into the next phase. And when I talk about decision-making under COVID as phased decision-making, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. We have found many of our strategies that we are cooking under COVID, ones that we're going to roll into the future of William & Mary forever, permanently. A terrific example would be we had to take our entire admissions program online. And the number one thing about William & Mary that converts students to in prospective students into William & Mary students is visiting our campus. It's beautiful. It's a place that calls you in to convene and study and think with other people. And so we had to figure out how do we convey that call in, that sense of community at a distance digitally. And we developed strategies for digital tours of campus and showcases of faculty forums for prospective students, one-on-one -on -one conversations that we're never going to go back from. People around the country said, this is great. I, I wouldn't have been able to come to William & Mary to visit campus, but now I feel as if I have. So that kind of gain via piloting and experimentation is a core principle of entrepreneurship. And it's been thrilling to see the whole university embrace that under the pressure of the pandemic. For my athletic life, one of the things that, maybe two things that I derive from my life as a coach and as a competitive athlete, I competed internationally at really high levels in my sport. As a coach, it, the importance of ensuring that you're thinking long-term and that you're connecting what we do every day to those long-term goals in a way that's flexible so that as we compete, as we bring new players onto the team, we have one goal, which is to win the state championship. Everything we do over the course of the season in an exploratory and experimental way is about making sure that everybody on the team is fully participating and has a chance to advance that goal. As an athlete, understanding that there are modes of competition, collective modes for the team that are constructive. And before that, I think I'd seen my own competitiveness as something that maybe wasn't socially constructive. But discovering team sports for me was about discovering how to be joyfully competitive on behalf of a group, an organization, a team. Well, I just think those are really neat threads that run through who you are and what you've brought to William & Mary. You've had some time now living in the President's House. What is your favorite thing about Williamsburg that you've discovered since you moved there? Besides the students who aren't here right now, <laughs> students are always the favorite thing. <laughs> the food culture. I, I didn't know this was such a foodie town. The restaurants are amazing and varied and wonderful. And there's a real appreciation of the local, locally grown, local recipes. So maybe that. And then more broadly in the region, uh, Jamestown Island, the archaeology that's happening there, the dig, it's unbelievable. It's done like anything else in the United States. It's really, obviously, history is something that we care an awful lot about in Virginia, and Williamsburg yeah. is right toward the top of that list. 
How do you think, this is a little bit more maybe of a speculative question and feel free to pass, but curious from where you sit, how do you think America and or American higher education could permanently change after everything going on with the pandemic has been settled? Well, it is speculative. We're in the process of discovering the answer to that question. At William & Mary, I can say a couple of things that I see happening right now. First of all, you know, nobody in the country would ever have called higher ed nimble, ever, right? And yet across the country, universities and colleges moved to distance modes in the space of a few short weeks. At William & Mary, we took 2,000 plus courses online in less than 10 days. And when I say online, this isn't online learning as we've classically understood it, right? Courses that are designed for a specific purpose. We resourcefully used every technology available to take courses that had never been imagined that way with faculty and staff who'd never done that work before and students who'd never experienced that before. And together, we brought ourselves into distant learning and finished the semester It's far from perfect. The challenges of that weren't about the technology. They were about quarantine. A student said something really brilliant to me about a month in. It's not that this is so hard because we're learning from home. It's that we're trying to finish the semester under quarantine. And the resilience of of our students and our faculty and staff has been phenomenal. We know, and this generation knows, that it can take something extraordinarily hard and be successful with it. The great lesson in resilience that this generation is learning is really profound. Uh, William & Mary, other lessons besides that we can marshal every technology that we need to achieve our ends, we've learned how much being together and learning in person matters. We've known for a while, all the research tells us that collaboration and learning in company with others accelerates learning. So when you look at the research, for example, on first-gen students, one of their biggest risk factors is that they haven't been habituated to, you know, having groups solve problem sets together or working on collaborative projects. And that's a learning process that we have to be very deliberate about with students who don't come from, you know, four years of collaborative learning in a wealthy suburban high school. So we're being called back again to the importance of collaborative, experiential, and face-to-face, and the importance of place and community and learning. That's a takeaway, counterintuitively, that runs alongside of all of the things we've learned about how to make every new technology serve our needs and our students' needs. So I think about those two lessons as parallel and intertwined, and ones that will change higher ed really profoundly. We've also learned that we can change the structure of our curriculum and our courses when we need to in order to serve our students' needs. And that's very freeing. In the Renaissance, one of the core lessons that you learn when you study the incredible blossoming of the theater, Shakespeare's theater, in the late 16th and early 17th century is that constraints enable creativity. Mm. Any theater professional will tell you that. It's the constraints on your art form that make you most resourceful and most creative. And that lesson has been a very profound one. Our harder lessons, I think we've seen, Stephen, what being able to study on a campus means for access for students who don't have secure living situations, who have maybe working multiple jobs in their lives before they can come to college, and that being able to clear the decks just to study and be part of a community of people learning together 
has such a profound, positive, transformative effect for student access and ability to have access to the learning experience. So those lessons are reaffirmed in really important ways as well. I'm excited about the future, and I think there's just so much potential. Obviously, it's a tough time for us all to get through at the moment, but um, yeah. you know, we're better positioned than most states in Virginia for a variety of reasons, partly fiscal management, partly the structure of our economy. I will say higher ed is probably, when I think about the sector concerns that I have, you know, hospitality and retail is certainly at the top, but I think probably higher ed close behind, just mostly concerns about the fall. I should say, I expect it won't be as acute for an institution like William and Mary, but, but I am concerned about some of the other schools with less selective admissions in terms of their ability to hit enrollment numbers, and particularly the mix of enrollment with out-of-state and international students under pressure. Um, one thing I will say about what we're coming to understand about the traditional higher ed business model because of COVID is that we are a blend of service work and knowledge work. We were able to pivot to complete the semester under quarantine because so much of what we do is knowledge work, right? You know, we had so many people that could telework and that could continue a class using the resources we had, like Zoom. And yet the reason that we are successful in the longer term, that we've lasted, we've been so durable, had to do with the way hospitality is interwoven with knowledge work. So our dorms and our dining halls are like hotels. We have a lot in common with the hospitality industry. And for me, part of the spring has been a really profound recognition that we are better in everything we do because of the way our service work and our knowledge work is intertwined. And that that is, I hope, one of the takeaways or lessons of the pandemic that we need to think a lot harder about how we can do that in a way that's really efficient and excellent and cost-effective for students so that we can maximize who has access to the kind of learning that students have at William & Mary. A big part of the imperative to come back is to be able to meet the needs of those most vulnerable students. So I think we're, we have a very challenging year ahead. That's wonderful. Dr. Roy, it's always a great pleasure talking with you. Is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered? I've been so grateful for the collaborations I've found here. I think you know I arrived from Western Mass having been able to build a collaboration between industry and higher ed that I was really proud of to launch a new data sciences major in the five colleges, Mass Mutual. I wondered whether I could find that kind of partnership here. was so fortunate to come to Virginia where the higher ed leadership, the business community, and the Commonwealth leadership were already thinking in that collaborative way and recognizing what a competitive advantage it would be for Virginia to be able to retain talent. That's something we have to focus on right now and in the years to come is how do we keep our extraordinary talent in Virginia. I'm really looking forward to working with you all to make sure we can. We are as well, and I know that that's one area where I think William and Mary has been quite strong, right? If I recall correctly, isn't it 70% or so of your grads stay in Virginia? It's a really high percent. That was from a couple of years ago. I don't know what it is right now, but that's our aspiration, that we are going to attract students here and convert them to be Virginians. Wonderful. Well, we are thrilled to have you in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We're so fortunate as a state to have so many incredible higher education institutions. William and Mary among the very finest, not just in Virginia, but around the world. And excited to collaborate with you in the years ahead. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. 
Thanks for listening.